This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Very pleased to be able to welcome uh, Professor Craig Calhoun to give the keynote address uh, in this afternoon's session. Um, Professor Calhoun is, as you probably all know, the director of the LSE, a post he took up in 2012. Previous to this, he was the university professor at New York University, director of the Institute for Public Knowledge. And if that wasn't enough, he was also president of the Social Science Research Council. He has published numerous books on a range of topics, including social theory, Pierre Bourdieu, nationalism, cosmopolitanism, and his most recent work was The Roots of Radicalization, published in 2012. But I think his most relevant book to this particular event is the one in 2007, Nations Matter, which I think was a really important intervention, arguing that, contra to much of the debates around globalization and cosmopolitanism, that national identities still mattered to a range of people around the world. So without any further ado, Professor Craig Calvin. Thanks very much, Michael, and thanks to everyone for being here. Um, it's particularly a pleasure to be here because I got to meet Michael Billick, <laughs> and um, that was a treat. But let me just launch in. Michael Billick's Banal Nationalism was a breath of fresh air when it was published in 1995. Many students of nationalism had grown more than a little tired of arguing about civic versus ethnic nationalism, or the distinction of benign patriotism from dangerous nationalism. To my own considerable regret, I had turned in the text for my own first book on nationalism, which came out in 1997, before reading Billig's book. It is cited in my text, but in that relatively modest way possible when something is discovered only as one is making final revisions, and therefore not as prominently as it should be. Um, and it should be both because of its importance and because of our substantial agreement and his priority in making some of the case. I cited Billig in a way I think is correct and appropriate, but limited. Moreover, the limits of my statement reflect some limits in the relationship between Billig's work and social science more generally, and I want to address these today. I wrote in 1997, quote, nationalism gives shape to soccer loyalties and the Olympic Games as well as to wars and economic competition. Billig, 1995, close quote. This is important and Billig made the case for it persuasively. Billig, in a sense, opened the eyes of researchers to the omnipresence of nationalism and the question of when, in his words, it is flagged and unflagged. 
The last was a pun, perhaps, or at least ironic, because national flags themselves could appear in flagged and unflagged ways. They could be casual background in everyday transactions and fields of vision, or the focus of patriotic attention in ceremonies, or indeed military mobilizations. One of Billig's key points was that, at least in what he called established nations, it was possible much of the time to forget that the very remembering, forget the very remembering and reproduction of nationalism that was embedded in everyday representations. And there's a wonderful bit of wordplay around forgetting the remembering and similar themes. In other words, it is not just that we forget acts of violence that shaped our collective past, as has been famously um, observed by Renan and others. It is that we fail to see many of the ways in which we are led to remember to think of ourselves as nationals. Since Billig wrote, there has been a dramatic expansion of attention to everyday nationalism. This has been central to the conference papers today. The examples are wide and interesting, from gymnastics to queers online to higher education itself. As in Billig's original work, a recurrent subtext is that seeing the nationalism in each setting reminds us that we didn't see it before. As Billig himself put it in opening the conclusion to banal nationalism, this book has been urging again and again, look and see the constant flaggings of nationhood. This calls attentions to the blind spots in doxic, uncritically taken for granted everyday life and in social science itself. I would like to say that at least social scientists had overcome this problem in the intervening years, but they haven't. We haven't. We notice violent nationalist mobilizations and extreme nationalist politics, but fail often to spot the pervasive appearance of national symbols and the constant location of the nation as our location in the world. Billig was especially attentive to nationalism and linguistic representations, calling our attention to the way it crept in, even when it was not part of the topic. Indeed, perhaps especially so. He emphasized thus the role of little words, like the definite article, the, which helps to reproduce the notion of bounded discrete nations, even when deployed in seemingly apolitical popular culture and media reports. To say, the nation was shocked, does this work whether the shock involves a football loss or the disappearance of an airplane from distant skies? In addition to just noticing the pervasiveness of nationalist thinking, researchers have also brought attention to the ways in which it is presented. The language was Billig's special interest. Researchers in recent years have paid more and more attention to visual representation. This includes symbolism and iconography, but also, as with language, there are constant, apparently less loaded representations, like maps or the organization of museum galleries as presenting French or Italian artists. But this leads also to one of Billig's points that is not yet adequately incorporated into the understanding of either specialist scholars or public debates perhaps because he made it less forcefully and less completely, though it is clearly made in banal nationalism. 
This concerns the extent to which nationalist politics, flagged nationalism, depends on the seemingly apolitical deployment of the rhetoric of nation. Hot nationalism depends on banal nationalism. In other words, nationalism is available for political purposes and dramatic moments of mobilization only because it is reproduced and produced in banal and everyday forms. This is something we don't grasp simply by calling attention to example after example of everyday nationalism, but only by connecting the everyday to other versions. Here, too, a number of papers at this conference take up the relationship between the banal and the dramatic, the partially unconscious everyday and the consciously manipulated or active forms of nationalism in French politics or in the Crimean crisis. There is considerable work to be done on this front, and the contributions at this conference are particularly welcome. Billig didn't just show that banal or everyday nationalism exists and is indeed pervasive, but made the deeper point that it is crucial to the rest of nationalism. Unfortunately, most of the followers, most of the readers who used Billig's work, followed up with demonstrating the existence of banal nationalism. They took this away as the main point of the book and not its necessity to the rest of nationalism, a larger discursive formation. As a result, his book is mostly cited simply for the observation that there is banal nationalism. This is a pity because most of political science, for example, continues to try to account for nationalism directly in terms of politics and interests. The problem is by no means limited to political science. Throughout the literature on nationalism, and even more in the press and popular accounts, there remains a bias towards seeing nationalism in a mixture of instrumentally pursued agendas and potentially bloody political passions. There isn't enough analysis of the underlying conditions for such conscious appearances of nationalism. Everyday nationalism is among these conditions. Billick focuses mainly on the attachment people feel to their nation, explaining how everyday representations matter alongside dramatic political engagements. This is the deixic of, nation, of nationals' political discourse, the constant locating, the pointing. In this, he addresses very helpfully the characteristic forgetting and even denial that allows especially people in the West and perhaps especially in the US, to think they have no nationalism, but only patriotism or calm and sensible civic feeling. Nationalism is seen only in other places and in extremists. But the successes of UKIP or France's Front National, just to take examples close to home, are made possible not just by persuasive demagogues or fear of immigrants, they are made possible by the constant reproduction of a sense of national belonging in everyday language use, media, and even sports. This generates and reproduces an us identity in the sense of Billig's teacher, Henri Tajvel, about which we are both prideful and defensive. The Iraq war is recurrently mentioned, the first Iraq war is recurrently mentioned in Billig's account. Discussion of it is perhaps where Billy comes closest to analyzing the ways in which broad patterns of everyday nationalism inform specific inflations of national sentiment. 
and more dramatic action. But though I think Billig is broadly right, the underlying point hasn't registered as fully in the literature as it might have done. In this connection, Billig makes points that I think are sound, but unfortunately underdeveloped in his book and missed in quite a bit of the literature. So I wish first to compliment all of you who've taken this up and then to urge you to take it up further and make sure that this fully penetrates the literature. One of these points concerns the elision between society and nation in much discussion. Billig points in particular to the prominence of this in much American sociology. I suspect he has Parsons particularly in mind, but it's by no means unique to him. There it reflects the particular penchant to forgetting nationalism that is connected to hegemonic power and a tendency to elide the idea of national and universal interests. This is an important theme, and an important theme in several different registers. It's an important theme for understanding voicing and the very rhetoric of pronouncements, but an under important theme as well for understanding the dynamics of hegemony. And there are questions about what happens to this kind of hegemonic discourse when the underlying hegemony itself begins to weaken or even to crumble. This is clearly a broader phenomenon as well. While Billig wants to point out that it influences academic sociology, he also sees it as part of the more general forgetting of everyday nationalism. He doesn't offer a sustained critique of the society-nation elision, though one can imagine that he had, had he written one, it would be similar to his critical analysis of the implicit nationalism of Richard Rorty's philosophy. He would be interested in the fact that Parsons, say, did this as an American, and thus that his own society was always implicitly behind his accounts that purported to be more universally about society. I think this is true, but it is also true much more generally than the very modern idea of societies as that the very modern idea of societies as implicitly discrete and bounded owes much to nationalism. That is the very idea of society, not just the Parsonsian or the American deployment of it, but the very idea grew up in a way together with nationalism, each informing the other. And it is a two-way traffic. On the one hand, the idea of na nation gives the notion of boundaries, of internally cohesive units, of external separation and demarcation to the idea of society, though of course these are reinforced by states, their administrative apparatus, their policing of boundaries. But on the other hand as well, the emergence of the idea of society, society in general, though by the 18th century many would call it civil society, and that would get recovered later, but society in general reinforced the idea of relations among the people themselves, not mediated through the state, not mediated through government, helping to constitute the nation. So it was a two-way traffic as nation and society grew up each informing the other. This is one reason for the phenomenon, also for the phenomenon that critics have called widespread methodological nationalism in much social science like the way statistics on a variety of subjects and units of analysis and comparative research naturalize as well as reproduce nations. This happens partly as a byproduct 
of the very power of nation states and the fact that this is how, say, the World Bank organizes statistics. So if you take their data sets, they come this way. But it is reproduced in a variety of other ways because of the deeper underlying complicity of the ideas of nation and the more or less unmarked usage of society. So that comparative research, even ironically, comparative research on nationalism almost always reproduces the idea of the always already there national characteristics of the states being studied. Or again, as Billig remarks, through quote, routinely familiar habits of language, the world of nations will be reproduced as the world, the natural environment of today. Or again, in so many little ways, the citizenry are daily reminded of their national place in a world of nations. Now, I want to suggest that this is an extremely important insight. I just quoted Billig making the point twice, and he makes it elsewhere. But it's not the dominant theme of the book. Again, it isn't noticed just by recognizing everyday nationalism. You have to go beyond that and make use of the recognition of everyday nationalism to see what's going on. And I'm going to suggest that we should enlarge a bit on the insight. In general, to me, Billig seems less simply interested in explaining nationalism as such than in demonstrating that we habitually fail to see a lot of it and therefore both misunderstand it and misunderstand our own participation in it as citizens and social scientists. This, it seems to me, is the central agenda of the book. He is more interested in how we situate ourselves in our nations than in how or why the idea of nation itself is in general currency. As a result, readers may miss the contributions he does make to the more general explanation. For myself, the argument would be stronger if Billig relied less on the notion of ideology to categorize nationalism. I want to indicate that my objection is not that it's wrong in any sense to call this ideology, but as you'll see, to um, the way in which that categorizes the discussion. In the first place, this very easily locates it in the realm of politics. Ironically, since one of Billig's um, major agendas is to tell us how everyday nationalism exceeds, and I would suggest even makes possible, the usages in a more compartmentalized realm of politics, the discussion of ideology is apt to pull it back and obscure the banal forms of reproduction that Billig emphasizes. It is as though, as though he thinks the general understanding of the way hot nationalism works is sound, but we are just apt to miss the ways banal nationalism reminds people of their national location and makes it easier to summon nationalist sentiment. I think, and I actually think Billig in the book suggests, that the general understanding of the way hot nationalism works is not completely sound that the issue is not just that we have failed to fully appreciate the everyday nationalism, but once appreciating this, that we should rethink some of the features of hot nationalism. For example, the way in which the world of nations is reproduced as the world, the national, natural environment of today, the passage I just quoted from Billig a moment ago, reminds us that the very um, availability of, if you will, a map 
of the world constituted as a map of demarcated nation states is itself a product right, of everyday nationalism, of an intellectual history, of a political history that is a precondition to many of the contests of a more hot nationalism, that it should inform that discussion. Secondly, though perhaps not necessarily, this emphasizes, the idea of ideology, emphasizes the role of interests in constituting national identities. I don't deny such interests by any means, and I don't deny the attendant biases. Nationalist identities are constituted in a world in which people have interests, and these bias their views of the world. But when we consider the general ubiquity of the national form, it is hard to see this as simply the sum of special interests. In other words, the critique we might offer of the way that English nationalism biases the view of the United Kingdom to take something that might be particularly salient in just a few days, right? or the way in which US nationalism, or for that matter, Chinese nationalism, or any other nationalism biases those people who participate in that nationalism as they look at the rest of the world doesn't in and of itself add up to an explanation of why the world looks to everybody inherently divided into nations. Right? There's a separate layer of explanation of the world picture that's being produced that won't be arrived at by the interested account of the biases in the individual national pictures. No doubt this derives in part from the existence of states and Billy claims associations with those who would explain nationalism mainly by the rise of modern states with their sharp borders and administrative apparatuses that make them, in Anthony Giddens' phrase, power containers. This view carries weight. I think it does. It has a lot of merit. But I think it may not do justice to the strength of what I would prefer to call the national or nationalist imaginary. I think it is important to see nationalism not just as an ideology that happens to be implicit in Parsons or any other sociologist, but as a social imaginary that informs much more generally the way in which academics and others understand the nature and organization of the world, the idea of society, of country, and of nation. Benedict Anderson famously suggested that nationalism was not so much one modern political ideology, like liberalism or communism, as it was a pervasive way of imagining the world, more like religion or kinship. Billig cites Benedict Anderson several times and occasionally uses the notion of imagining the nation. So I think this is not foreign to his account. But he doesn't make this idea a central part of his theoretical toolkit or of an explanation of nationalism. And he does partially distance himself from it. He says, and I quote, Benedict Anderson's idea of the nation as an imagined community is a useful starting point for examining these themes as long as it is realized that the imagined community does not depend on continued acts of imagination for its existence. Now, it seems to me that this deprives the idea of a good deal of its force. Billig may be concerned, he's here and he could say, to make clear that lots of the representations of everyday nationalism are in circulation without being mobilized in imagining anything in particular. 
That is, we place postage stamps that carry national images on letters without any associated act of imagination. We use coins and currency without any associated act of imagination. I think that's true. Um, we see the flag in front of government buildings even without thinking about it. Moreover, Billig seems to think, though, that reference to imagining is inherently subjective and obscures the recurrent formal aspects of nationalism. But this, I think, is not a helpful reading of Anderson. It implies an unfortunate dualism, as, for example, he claims that, and I quote again, national identities are forms of social life rather than internal psychological states. If this is a forced choice, I agree with Billig. We're talking about forms of social life. But it seems to me this is probably a false opposition. And even the greater strength of Billig's arguments, and not only in this book, but in others, suggests me that he might actually be open to the idea that it's a false opposition, um, this idea of the internal and the external, um, that these are much more mutually informing. The idea of social imaginaries is precisely a bridge between the objectively recurrent and the subjectively enacted. It is because we have a social imaginary, say of markets or of voting, to follow Charles Taylor, that we are able both to take a variety of actions, interactions in fact, and to understand ourselves and others as we do so. This speaks to a curious flatness in many accounts of everyday nationalism. Many limit themselves to representations, not developing the way in which these representations are embedded in and reproduced in action. So it seems to me that there is the flat reality, in a sense, of the postage stamps, of the coins. So in this sense, Billig is right. We shouldn't limit ourselves only to the constant reproduction of imagination. And yet, we need to pay attention to action. This doesn't, isn't a world of representations without acting human beings. And in this, there is constant performativity. There is a constant reproduction that takes place in doing things. And because we are doing things, which we cannot do without mobilizing one aspect or another of the idea or representation of nationalism, we are complicit in its reproduction, very much like speaking or writing well, we are complicit in the reproduction of grammar, whether or not we can give an abstract analytic account of grammar. And I think we are connected to this in significant part by imagination, but by a highly regulated mode of imagination. Put another way, everyday nationalism consists not just of a bunch of words that happen to be repeated, but participates in grammar and syntax that make it hard to speak without reproducing nationalist thinking. Anderson offers a number of illustrations of how the idea and the lived reality of nation is produced and reproduced through organizations of imagination. In a powerful analysis, he discusses how novels prepare the way for this imagination by presenting interacting storylines that suggests, suggest multiple personal histories entwined with each other, even when the characters are not in interaction. 
Right? This is true of lots of novels. He has in mind particularly the sort of Dostoevskian narratives in which there are clusters of characters involved in different separate stories, but the stories interact with each other in various ways. And this, he suggests, is a kind of mental preparation for thinking the nation, because the nation is not just a flat consistency of its symbols. It is, in fact, the intersections of potentially innumerable biographies and histories of different parts and sections. And so a kind of integration is being accomplished in narrative as in partially mythical national histories. <clears throat> in a famous image, Anderson describes the now, I think, dying ritual of people all over a country reading their daily newspapers. His point is not merely that they get the same information, which after all, they may or may not get because there may be multiple newspapers with different points of view, or as we now focus on because of new kinds of audience and reception theory, they may not get the same thing out of the same words. The point is that they are embedded together in both synchronicity and narrative. And this, not similarity as such, helps to produce a sense of commonality. A significant part of what Anderson is trying to add here to an account in the end of everyday nationalism, for surely just reading the newspaper qualifies as banal activity in this sense, right? and the newspapers will often come with a variety of relatively unflagged national symbolism, but as the day analysis that Billy points out, lots of flagging as well. Right? But this ritual produces a sense of commonality not simply by making people similar to each other, but by embedding them in a practice which they can imagine each other embedded in, and may well imagine each other embedded in beyond any warrant that is given in reality. Those of us who still read the newspaper with our morning cup of tea, a minority now of Britons, probably still have the kind of imagining of the naturalness of that custom, the nationalness of that custom that reflected older practices in an earlier period. In the 1991 revised edition of Imagined Communities, Anderson added a brilliant chapter called Census, Map, and Museum, looking at each of these as vehicles for imagining nations. I should note that it would be, in a sense, unfair to criticize Billig for not taking this up because he doesn't work from the revised edition, but the 83 edition. And since I've just opened this by indicating that I didn't have Billig's book in front of me as fast as I should have, it would hardly be reasonable to criticize him for not having the new edition of Anderson in front of him. But the trilogy Census Map and Museum give us a clear steer towards the reproduction of nationalism as social form, precisely, I think, what um, Michael was himself suggesting we look at. It can hardly be understood as an internal state alone, and yet there is an element of consciousness, including self-consciousness internally, shaped by each of these vehicles for imagining nations. So imagining isn't a purely internal state, in Anderson's sense, not at all. It is very much a social form. And it's not a matter of similarity, it's a matter of entwined lives. Part of the point, for example, of the account, say, of census 
is that it locates many people who are found to be different, male and female, old and young, living in different parts of the country, working in different occupations, in a common picture of the population. Very much like um, a variety of more verbal accounts which record all of the different types of identities in the people. Very much like marches in which people will parade down um, important boulevards organized in occupational groups or by ethnicities or regions or otherwise. It's a representation in a strong sense in that way. So we shouldn't take Anderson's example of newspaper reading to be about contents rather than practice. And I'd like to suggest that's an important bit of advice for thinking about everyday nationalism in general. Contents are not insignificant, and we should analyze contents, but we should also look at practices and how they work, not just contents. It is, in some sense, easy to stick to contents because those are the surface of what we find, but good to look beyond them. More deeply, I'm interested in social imaginaries because I think they are crucial to the process of the production and reproduction of social reality itself. They are not merely subjective, but evidence of the speciousness of the sharp opposition between subjective and objective. They are ways in which some very firm, and even in certain senses material, realities come into being and continue to influence our lives. Take corporations, business corporations most of all, but it could be NGOs or other kinds of corporations. British universities are in fact all technically corporations. Right? Corporations right, are in part based on continuing to imagine a, something that is a creature either of a grant of permission from the government or a contract between the parties to creating it. And there is, in fact, a tradition of argument over which of these two should be primary. Is it primarily the grant from the government or primarily the contract between responsible parties? But within the very tradition of argument, and here I'm quoting Schaber, who's quoted by Billig, right? there exists a reproduction of the corporation as such. The corporation, the business corporation, for example, is able to own property. It's able to enter into contracts, including contracts with you or me or other human individuals. It is able to sue us or be sued by us in courts of law. So it becomes a kind of artificial person, right? but it becomes a very material reality. Nobody would suggest that Unilever, for example, is only a part of some idealist world and not a part of the material world we inhabit, yet its materiality is reproduced in significant part by its being imagined, by our being willing and judges in the courts and others in administration being willing to accept its existence. I've written about this elsewhere, and I won't belabor or fully develop the point here, but it speaks to everyday nationalism, because this is not merely a set of flat contents on the surface of social life, but part of the process of social imagination that makes national thinking and national sense of belonging available for politics. And it works not just from the inside, as we imagine our own nations, Right? It works from the outside, as indeed we imagine others and stereotypes of nations. 
Willig makes two very important points in this connection. First, the work of social imaginaries is often very prosaic. In that sense, it presents a bit of a problem for all of us as would-be authors wishing, wishing to catch attention. We will be drawn towards the more surprising, the more dramatic, the more striking illustrations. And we may mislead a bit if we go there. As Billig writes of being part of a country, this place has to be unimaginatively imagined and the assumptions of nationhood accepted for the routine phrase to do its routine rhetorical business. I think he's completely right in this. That is, that there is a rhetoric of imagining and announcing that one has imagined something new, but the rhetorical process of reproducing the routine, the unimaginative imagining, is crucial. And here, I think, he is invoking some of the kind of imagining Anderson is talking about, which elsewhere he's a bit hesitant about. In other words, the nation must be routine and commonplace sometimes and in some contexts for it to be available to extraordinary and dramatic mobilizations at others. You can't have only the drama. Second, the reproduction of nationalism may take place in argument as well as agreement. Billig twice quotes Schotter, the same passage I quote, quoted, to the effect that nationalism is commonly a tradition of argumentation. The nation is reproduced as a common reference point in debates over what the nation should be, how it should be defended, or its interests advanced. I've argued this elsewhere, and I think it's an important insight from Schotter, from Billig, from me even. Right? It is the insight that often we don't inhabit consensus, we don't inhabit similarity. Right? And the nationalist stories about nations, which emphasize their internal similarity, fail to grasp that what we inhabit is an argument with each other about what we think our nation is or think it should be. Now, this is important, among other things, because it relates to the possibility that we make our nation's projects, just like we make ourselves projects. We have images of ourselves, what we think we're like. We may flatter ourselves, or in fact, some of us may um, do quite the opposite. But our images of ourselves are often linked up with a sense of wanting to be better selves. We are not simply neutral realists with ourselves. We want to lose weight. We want to stop biting our nails. We want to be a little bit more articulate in public. Right? We have a constant project of care for the self and work on the self. And in the same sense, the inhabiting of nations is not the inhabiting of an already formed flat production of similarity. It is often the constant attempt to make the nation live up a bit more to its ideals, or to make the nation live up a bit more to our ideals, which we claim to be its ideals. As I've argued elsewhere, inhabiting a vital, agonistic public sphere is sometimes condemned by self-declared nationalists as division within the nation. But in fact, 
it may be a feature of thriving national solidarity, not its enemy. There's one important respect in which Billy doesn't develop this point, and it is of significance for further research on everyday nationalism. He's going to walk out and catch his train at this very moment. It may be because I'm saying this, but it probably is because of the timing of the train. For all of this refreshing willingness to think anew about na nationalism, Billig sees it as almost completely pernicious. He offers a confession, in his words, of his own participation as a sports fan who cheers national sides. But though he apparently thinks that some manifestations of banal nationalism fall well short of evil, the implicit, uh, by and large, this, this is fine if you're cheering England. I cheer for Manchester United, and many people think that is simply evil. Um, the implicit concern of his book is that everyday nationalism be recognized as on a continuum with hot or dramatic or violent nationalism. I think he's absolutely right to refuse the separation of supposedly benign patriotism from malign nationalism, as though the two were completely different phenomena. That's He's clearly right, and most of the literature is clearly wrong on that. He is right to refuse to generalize from the extremes of nationalism alone, and that's a paper that at least two of you I've heard make today, a point I've heard at least two of you make in your papers today. He's right to refuse to let those who participate in everyday nationalism off the hook of responsibility for abusive nationalism can't participate in the everyday nationalism in the United Kingdom and then say, oh, it's not my country when it imposes immigration restrictions that are unreasonable. But in making this point, he misses something very important to the reproduction of both banal and dramatic nationalism. To think that nationalism is always bad and that banal nationalism simply underwrites the always available potential for more evil obscures the importance of nationalism to some much more positive projects. I don't just mean that in times of war, soldiers, and indeed ordinary people, may feel a sense of solidarity and that this is good. More basically, I mean that nationalism is integral to much of modern democracy. Nationalist discourse is integral to constructions like we the people in the US Constitution. A sense of common national membership is integral to acceptances of different opinions and even electoral losses. And beyond democracy, a sense of belonging to a common nation has underwritten many modern projects of economic redistribution and social welfare. The National Health Service has that name for a reason. And we need to ask ourselves whether it would exist without some commonality such as that of nation. More generally, the weakening of the idea of nation may not be simply a liberation to freedom from its normative order, but an invitation to refuse projects of the redistribution of wealth because they can no longer be understood as projects of strengthening the nation or achieving fairness within the nation. So I think nation plays a part in some of these projects that we care about in this double way. We care about improving the nation, but because we have the reference point, the nation, we will support welfare state or redistributive or other kinds of projects that are harder to imagine supporting without it. My point is not just that 
these good institutions justify the evil actions undertaken in the name of nations. They may not. The National Health Service may not be good enough to justify military adventures or immigration restrictions. That's a question we have to ask. Rather, the point is that a very significant part of how nationalism is reproduced is through its embedding in collective projects of national improvement. Right? My point isn't just that we ought to want nationalism because it gets us some good things. That may or may not follow and we'd have to evaluate the costs, the benefits. My point is that if what we're trying to understand is how nationalism comes to be available for different kinds of projects, war or building the National Health Service, either one, it is because it has already been available to people pursuing their different projects for making something better in their society. In the interest of time and discussion, let me offer just a few other points, six actually, in telegraphic fashion, and um, conclude. First, Billig's account of banal nationalism offered many examples of why and how it is that nationalism is always international. He wrote, the nation is always a nation in a world of nations. Internationalism is not the polar opposite of nationalism as if it constitutes a rival ideological consciousness. This is clearly right. I should have thought it were obviously right if it were not that it is so often forgotten. But it is recurrently and constantly forgotten and the national and the international are simply directly opposed as though one of them is not derivative of the other. Forgetting the international character of nationalism, second, is conducive to illusory notions of how globalization will affect nationalism. It never ceases to amaze me how many people have imagined that globalization will simply replace nationalism with a universal cosmopolitan consciousness. It may be that more academics imagined this 10 years ago than do now but plenty still do. Billig points out reasons why this is a fantasy, even though globalization does pose challenges for nation states. I have gone further, in fact, and argued that nationalism, including reactive, defensive, and belligerent nationalism, is among the ways people respond to globalization, and it cannot be completely separated into the good and the bad. We have the same problem we have with the idea of bad nationalism and good patriotism when we ask whether nationalist responses to globalization are all bad xenophobia and protectionism or the good of the almost the only successful friction standing in the way of global capitalism. Third, Billig wrote in the early 1990s, the first Iraq war was in the background of his account as I've mentioned, but so was new labor in the United Kingdom. This was a dramatic moment of simultaneously mobilizing and forgetting nationalism. Enthusiastically cosmopolitan, the coiners of the phrase cool Britannia were also banali and constantly nationalist. Fourth, of course, we live with new and interesting manifestations of nationalism today. The United Kingdom may shortly be dismembered. Britain is uncertain whether its national sovereignty interests and essentially symbolic being is threatened by membership in the EU. 
There is perhaps more hot nationalism in the West than there was when Billig wrote. It appears in responses to immigration, to Islam, to conflict in Eastern Europe. But there is always an entanglement of hot nationalism with the everyday. And this is manifest in the extent to which, for example, the financial crisis of 2009 and after brought not an, a European Union of reinforced solidarity, but one of much more nationalist discourse. Fifth, Billig has called our attention to the pervasiveness of both flagging nationalism and rendering flagging self-consciously unflagged or below the level of explicit consciousness. But it is worth considering also those practices and projects in which there is active conscious unflagging. I have in mind humanitarian action, for example. Sometimes this has manifest national dimensions, especially when funded by governments. But it is significantly the work of non-governmental organizations that go out of their way not to flag nationality. They may sometimes deceive themselves by their own actions into thinking they have entirely transcended and escaped nationality. Media representations of humanitarian suffering, likewise, tend systematically to be devoid of flags, though they may appear on the uniforms of those said to cause the emergencies. Typical representation, women and children suffering, men in uniform responsible. Yet there is a tension and negotiation between the flagged and the unflagged that deserves to be explored. Sixth, finally, it is worth remembering that nationalism is not the primary thread running through Billig's exceptional life's work. That thread might rather be an interest in rhetoric and specifically the relationship of rhetoric to social psychology. This appears in banal nationalism in various places and ways, but I want to suggest that it is a theme and an approach that has not at all been exhausted in the study of nationalism, or for that matter, of academic habits and disciplines. Rhetorical analysis was a part of the so-called linguistic or discursive turn of the 1990s, but it's the part that didn't take off to excess. It hasn't received, achieved the currency of others, and it can be very valuable. Relatedly, so is exploring the link, as some have done today, between rhetoric and language on the one hand and emotions on the other. As Billig wrote, though he said much less about affect than I think some papers helpfully did today, hatreds are commonly justified in the name of love. Let me close with two summary thoughts. Michael Billig's book, as I said at the outset, was a breath of fresh air. He offered a range of compelling insights, and he offered help to those who would think a bit outside the box of conventional analyses of nationalism. This conference has continued that project. It is important work. One must hope both that Billig's book continues to be reprinted and read, and that the papers from this conference and the other work of those who wrote them get the attention they richly deserve. Thank you. Are there any questions? As I stand towering above you. Yeah, back. Hi, um, Kristen Sarah from SOAS. Um, I, I really thought it was quite an, an interesting that the point that you were making about um, moral elements 
um, in, in the importance of sort of nation building and this sort of thing. It seems a very important point in part because um, a lot of the work on, on nationalism has been looking at you know, us versus them. And here, here we get at this question not only of good and bad nationalism, which researchers have talked about for years, but actually, actually what people in these sorts of things are making on the ground. And you also implied that this is what sort of bounds in us together that makes a lot of important social cultures really possible. But I was wondering how this links back to what you're talking about in, in terms of the national imaginary, um, when, in, when it's the sort of things that you know we do anyways, that we almost can't avoid. You're likening it to the way that you know in talking we use grammar, whether or not we can analyze that as well. Does the moral element come back into there also? Is, is there a pernicious sort of um, permeation of this, or does it sort of fade? away from, you know, the scene. So, so pernicious permeation could be a great title for something. Um, the, I think whether it's pernicious or not, I'm going to say once again, as of nationalism itself, is open to analysis of particular cases. But yes, the moral comes back in that feedback loop. I put it again in terms of the difference between imagining and similarity, like, like nationalism is just the common morality or the common mores in Sumner's phrase that everybody, they, that make up an ethne, this is what Sumner coined the term to refer to. Um, I think by saying morality, we say something that um, implies our ability to um, stand back and analyze. So it's different from mere accepted practices. It's available for argument. This is the right thing to do. No, that is the right thing to do. Now, not everything is available. There may be restrictions on it. There may be problematic, even pernicious restrictions on it. You can question anything but not sexual behavior or something like that. But the, um, the idea here is that being available to a sense that it is our common moral business is a, um, a key characteristic. And that doesn't imply that everybody agrees in their moral conclusions. So to continue the language analogy, we speak, we reproduce grammar, we may not have any idea of grammar, but there are grammarians, right? There is the possibility of that um, regimentation and that argument about the regimentation that comes. In, and it's no accident. In France, for example, the Académie Française, which governs national language use, among other things, gets created in the context of the revolution as a radically nationalist gesture. Not doing direct politics, right, but doing Frenchness in a strong way. And the writing of dictionaries and all sorts of things are um, acts of codification right, in nationalism. Now, the same I want to suggest goes on, something analogous at least, goes on with morality, and it's what I meant about projects of trying to be better. So in the Second Great Awakening of the United States, in the early 19th century, a variety of people began, uh, not particularly focused at one level on nation, very focused on morality, Protestant evangelists, began to campaign against slavery by saying it was a national sin. Right. To say it was a national sin, or a new category of sins, sin had been understood overwhelmingly in personal terms, right, was a reinforcement of nation in this, being mobilized in this moral argument against slavery. In other words, you don't own any slaves, but you're implicated because your country allows people to own slaves. 
And that kind of moral argumentation, it seems to me, is part of national traditions and part of why I think the project of trying to reconcile one's morality with one's nationality is part of the history of nationalism. I don't mean people succeed and nations simply become good, but I mean that that effort of reconciling one's own moral conviction with one's nationality is part of what knits people together in nations, even though they don't all agree. and you got it exactly right. So I understand, at least, the notion of social imaginary to be non-specific with regard to time and place. But you would then locate social imaginary. So you could have social imaginary anywhere. Would you locate it by time and place? So that you might have the category modern social imaginaries, which happens to be a title of a book by Charles Taylor, who basically says the modern era produces some new social imaginaries and, in fact, produces itself partly by these social imaginaries. So the rise of market, one that I referred to, isn't just something that happens in the material world which people then have to think about. It's something that happens simultaneously in action and in imagination. And a whole series of things go along with it, including morality, if you will, the sanctity of the contract, and all sorts of other things. Um, so the, the um, way I put it is that there are certain social imaginaries that are constitutive of what we have called the historical epic of modernity. Right? That's a disproportionately Euro-centered account, and you would have to be um, looking for variation in these imaginaries as you move outside the West, <coughs> as you look at other time periods. But also, inside the West, you would see contestation over this. It's not like everybody said, oh yeah, the market, cool. Um, right? Modernity was a time of contestation over the market. And indeed, contestation over democracy and so forth. It wasn't just, quote, the growth of liberal capitalism or something as though that was a natural growth. It was the, the constitution of so-called liberal capitalist societies, that is, market democracies. Um, where there were always potential alternatives, but the social imaginary is part of that constitution, that people come to imagine that as simply the way life is. So you may not even want to vote, but you, have, you know that that's how the next parliament's going to be constituted, and so forth. Um, so I think you're exactly right that the modern social imaginaries are a specific subset of all the potential or actual social imaginaries there are, and you would have to exert the same sort of self-critical um, uh, attitude that you do when talking about nations, that you speak about 
France, you know, now and 100 years ago and 200 years ago, and at some point this is tendentious because there isn't France in the modern sense. In the same way, when you speak of imaginaries, they aren't discrete and just you know, completely cut apart so that you can neatly say, oh, this is the Chinese imaginary and this is the Confucian imaginary in a way that includes all the Confucian imagined societies or something. It's, it's a complicated thing that has to be approached carefully, but that's the way I would, I would work on it. Thanks. Yeah. No, only people in the back row have questions. Oh, good. Somebody else does too, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, my question is, is about um, the issue of cooperation and their influence on the construction of nationalist imagination or imaginary. Don't you think that um, actually the, the market is a very important actor on the framing of the new kind of nationalist consciousness in the sense that corporations through advertisements, uh, ads in general, uh, tend to frame also the way uh, people think of themselves or of others? I mean, not that people really believe that uh, Italians are exactly like in the ad for Mozzarella, but sure. uh, it's, I mean, it's a kind of a common useful stereotypes. Right. I don't know if they're useful, but these stereotypes. Used, used whether they're useful used or not. Useful. <laughs> and, and in a way, they're not very often studied. And, and I feel there's probably a vast degree of, of analysis for that. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I'm tempted to just say yes, but what I'll say is that, that at least three different things that you said I agree with, um, and they're not identical. So it's, um, one is that markets are pervasive, and they influence um, our understanding of, of nations and what they're like, as well as influencing many other things, and indeed even more. And nations try to act on them in various ways, through governments and in other ways. You should buy the products of your home country or whatever. Um, that's, that's one. Two, corporations. I think markets and corporations aren't the same. Um, corporations are particular organizations, many of which are set up to act in markets, but they are organizations of power and property to act in and on markets, and they themselves also have um, relations to nations. It'd be a different talk and a complicated story to work out. We think, for example, um, such and such a corporation, you know, IBM is an American corporation. Well, yes, but it's also operating all over the world, and it's complicated and changing, and, you know, and at the same time, um, many countries experience U.S. hegemony, if they experience it, not exactly through the U.S. government, but through U.S. corporations, um, or U.S. headquartered corporations, or U.S. headquartered corporations and the consumer products they sell, or something like that. So corporations also um, compelling and, and complicated in relation to nationalism. I brought it up as just an example of, of an imagined reality like nation, but of course they interact. Um, and we have corporations that are larger in economic weight, at least, um, than whole national economies in the world, and that complicates a picture of how the world looks. So if the world, in national terms, looks very much like a map with pink and blue and gray spaces neatly demarcated from each other, and we talk about that world of international affairs, and we ignore corporations, we are actually engaged in a very interesting ideological distortion of the world of actual international affairs in which corporations are always also actors. You know, Google and Apple and so forth are part of the action in um, Euro-American and you know, American-Chinese and a variety of other kinds of, of relations. 
Finally, you mentioned advertising. Um, and here, too, whoever is buying and doing the advertising, um, it can be significant. National images can be played upon for private purposes. But um, Melissa Ranchek is here in the audience, has written a book on nation branding and the way in which the deployment of advertising and marketing techniques may be used to try to um, create a certain image for a nation, maybe an image for the purpose of getting tourists to come uh, or for getting investors to invest. Um, and it's often um, a communication simultaneously to the people inside the nation as well as to those outside it. Look, your government is doing good things for you by getting investors to come. And, and so all these worlds are necessarily entwined. Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, my question is, how do you imagine the, the location of uh, studies of nation and nationalism within the big uh, group of uh, social science and humanities? I mean, uh, well, let's say sociology, because I'm from the Polish Academy of Science over there in Poland. Um, national identity is uh, in the core of sociology and everything. But right. here in the West, you, this nation is something just just a part, yeah? Or like, let's say um, sociology in um, the West talk about a family. Family means single single uh, father or single mom. But in the East, you have the family includes the grandparents and cousins and everybody. Right. Sometimes it doesn't much, doesn't work. So or in Poland, um, we don't have to talk about cooperation as a person because we got already a physical person and legal person. It's already, the, the concept is already there, already there. Or the nation is already a project. We don't need to, to think about it again. So, other, in other way, um, is sociology national or not? Mm -hmm. um, all right, a lot of things there. One, yes, sociology is national. Not completely national, or we wouldn't be able to talk to each other, but, but yes, lots of national characteristics to academic fields that believe they have transcended nation and are studying universal truth but on many levels they have different ideas so you point out that there may be concepts and we have the concept of of legal and natural person too um, but it's not in everyday use right so lawyers all know this distinction and some other academics all know this distinction but it's not habitual and um, so people were startled when the u.s supreme court um, ruled that corporations were persons um, who which were um, entitled to free speech, for example. That was seen as crossing a line in this natural legal distinction, and it made the category, which people didn't worry about most of the time, suddenly seem problematic, because has changed. So in any one country, there can still be these tensions. You think you know, and then something happens. But there are certainly national differences to sociology, to every other discipline. Secondly, um, disciplines are like nation states. They police their boundaries incompletely. There is migration. They have um, central power authorities with varying degrees of control over what goes on. They have um, capitals, um, that is the powerful departments at the famous universities, and they have peripheral areas, which may be sources of great creativity or may simply suffer deprivation of resources from the center, like every place in Britain that is not called London. And um, the uh, uh, so that the analogy of nation and academic field, I think, would be quite powerful, either at the level of individual departments in universities or at the level, more generally, of, of the fields nationally. So 
Um, the um, study of nationalism is one of several topics which I think is undermined by this. Um, it is, as you suggest, institutionalized in different subjects in different countries and just in different universities in different places. Um, it is a topic which ought to be of interest to lots of different fields, right? So obviously in the social sciences, there's a, there should be a sociology, an anthropology, a history, a political science, and so forth. The range of fields, there's literary studies, and where would nationalism be without Homi Baba? You know, there, there are, you can, a large number of disciplines, but it doesn't fit neatly into any of them. It cuts across all of them in um, at least Anglo-American settings. So um, it is, um, it has shifted in varying ways and, and anomalies come out. Jean Broy, who many of you um, would know, is um, holds a chair in nationalism at the LSC, created Anthony Smith and this, um, in the government department, but he's a historian, right? This kind of thing is by no means unique to him. Um, the field has uh, suffered from difficulties in getting on the agenda of individual disciplines, even while it has benefited from many different disciplines making intellectual contributions to it. Um, so I, I think that's the picture um, in a, a nutshell. One could go on and, and look at it. Um, further, for example, there are some fields which are organized in ways that have an almost intrinsic relation to nationalism. History is um, almost everywhere taught mainly as the history of our nation and only secondarily as the history of other nations or the rest of the world. Um, so that a, you know, a typical history department embodies in a certain sense a nationalist division of territory and a nationalist ethnocentric consciousness. That's a little bit true of sociology. Um, sociologists are more likely to object to this, but it's still true. American sociologists mostly study America. British sociologists mostly study Britain. British sociologists do a little bit more um, certain kinds of overseas work, and the French sociologists mainly study France, and you know, this kind of thing goes on, um, even though everywhere there are people who resist it and contest it and try to be broader and call for students to be educated in a more broad way. And part of it is just that it's a lot easier to get data close to home. Um, it takes a bigger production to go do field work 10,000 miles away from where you are than to do it next door. And, um, and language skills and other things get in the way. It's one of the many reasons why I have argued that um, nation, the, the idea and the power and the salience of nation and nationalist rhetoric and discourse to go with it aren't likely to disappear very fast. It doesn't, you know, because, and I believe Michael Billig argued the same thing. Um, there are problems, like nations can't control their own finances very often now. That's almost impossible in global financial capitalism. It's one of the things that the financial crisis taught Europeans, especially Southern Europeans, with bond ratings and all of these issues, that national financial fiscal policy, national fiscal policies can't control financial markets. Um, the, that said, there are still all these other things that keep reproducing nationhood and keep reproducing its personal meaning to people and its importance to their projects. So I don't expect it to fade away, and even academia is like this. And it reproduces partly in terms of how we study it, but partly in, in more pernicious ways, like the nature of academic hierarchies, the hegemony of English as an academic language, and, and then the varying responses of different national groups to that.
Yes? Can I make a very quick suggestion that if we have nationalism uh, within the, or division within the study of nationalism, that maybe ASEAN is a useful sort of United Nations <laughs> where we can all come together? Yeah, yeah. Well said. <laughs> Happy to endorse that. Yes. Um, about precarity and um, what Judith Butler calls uh, precaritization, which is where kind of um, things get a bit negotiated between the people with agendas and imagination. So I want to ask you about the, 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 the kind of the negotiation of imaginations and whether or not in your mind, when you said there's the individual and then there's the corporate or a, a non-individual project, um, it, it, it would appear to me that there, that there is a um, there is a division of labor, for lack of a better word, and and also an, a negotiation between all the different parties, and you hope that at some point everybody agrees. But but as you go along, it would seem that all of a sudden this you know precarity kind of creeps in, so that there's this dependence on each other, and then yeah. there's this there's this chaos. <laughs> yeah. Um. Judith Butler was a professor of rhetoric for 25 years in her career, and I would have thought to come up with a better word than precaritization. Um, but I don't know the better word either. So, so and, and part of her use is to point out that there is a, a constant recurrent um, falling into precarity, um, and to try to, to give that noun a sense of process, a thing happening um, here. And I think it's important. Um, the, it opens up lots of questions. Now, I personally think it's a common denominator through projects, through, through many different things that don't have the same explanation. So there won't be an easy one-to-one, -one, here is the account of precarity, because it's immigration and it's unemployment, and unemployment for different reasons. Um, and um, the situation of um, occupied peoples and you know, you could go and give a long list of things that that put one in the situation of, of a precarious, fragile existence in this way. Um, and in fact, fragilization has been used by others to try to talk about partially similar things. The um, but the the phenomenon that people are groping to give an account for it seems to me is very important and important because we risk overstating the coherence of the world and the extent to which things like nation states actually work. Now, the opposite, I suggest, would be a mistake. They aren't just fading away, like, don't worry, there are no more powerful governments. Those, those you know, drones the Americans have, don't be afraid of them, um, or something, right? That would be a mistake. But it would be a mistake also to think that they work as well as a sort of um, an understanding that exaggerates their own coherence of apply. They are able to accomplish some things, not others. You know, no country is able to accomplish continuous full employment. I mean, they, so there are limits to all of these things, and there may be greater or lesser precarity. I think that what, how migration, for example, fits into understanding the world as a world of nation states is a big deal. There's a huge amount of migration in the world today. Um, it's of various different kinds, but all of it raises questions about nationality. For some people, it reinforces their sense of being a member of a nation, right? Because you, you just thought that you were in China. Um, your consciousness 
um, was of a particular regional sub-identity of China. You leave and you're just Chinese because other people don't recognize the difference between being um, Cantonese or Fukinese or whatever it is. Um, and you know, these sorts of things. So sometimes it, it makes nation more important. Right? Um, sometimes it completely undercuts people's associations with nation. Um, creates pan-national identities. And observed a lot with Latin American immigrants in the US that unlike, say, Eastern European immigrants, they tend not to produce exaggerated loyalties to traditional identities of their nation. They tend to produce a pan-ethnic Latino identity to a greater extent. Um, you know, there's just a range of these things, and they are connected enough to nationality studies to, observe, to deserve attention in the same framework. Um, the precarity thing, though, um, I think should call our attention to the, the various ways in which we need to connect the study of nationalism to a larger political economy. Um, it has been, for my taste, a little bit too compartmentalized. So I applaud the good news of, of us and as the United Nations of Nationalism Scholars, but I want to encourage it not to be a nation of nationalist scholars against the scholars of all these other related topics, because I think we get nationalism wrong if we think it's a phenomenon unto, unto itself. And it is, in part, in the ways in which life is being made precarious or fragile, um, hard to organize stably for lots of populations, larger languages of how to think about this, that um, that's, that phenomenon brings nationality to the fore for some people. Both people who want to push the precarious out of their minds, right, and people who are trying to deal with their precarious situation. So it is very much related to nationalism. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Okay, before we get to the pub, two things. One is the thank yous. I'd like to thank um, David Cole, the ASN Chair, who has given me a lot of uh, assistance, administrative assistance, uh, over the past few weeks. He's been a real help. Um, also, his predecessor, uh, Christine, who I came to uh, last year with the idea of this, and she was very enthusiastic and very supportive. Um, I'd also like to thank Chris Moffat, who's not here, who came up with this rather wonderful design. Um, and this leads me on to my second point, which was, I was in Holland in um, July, visiting my partner's family, and I was talking about the work I was doing, and I said this conference was coming up, and I showed them this poster. And my mother-in-law said, oh, that's a nice poster. And I asked her what you know, she thought it meant. This is obviously a, a post box in, in England. And she said, and I thought it was a really sweet thing to say, she said, I thought this post box represented your conference. And all the people that were going to come along were going to put a letter, which was their idea or their paper, into the post box. And I think that, you know, I, I could only go to uh, 
one half of the, the panel sessions, but I think we've done a really good job today in terms of moving beyond content to think about what people do, to think about how people feel, to think about the structures that they build in materialising the nation. I also think there's been some really interesting ideas in terms of critiquing and extending Billy's arguments theoretically. So, who does banal nationalism apply to? Is the dichotomy between hot and banal a useful one? And some also really interesting work thinking about the value, the ongoing value of national frameworks and national identities in what has been labelled a globalising world. So I think we've done a good job in terms of bringing those ideas together. And there is a plan to try and produce one, possibly two publications linked to this event. And I'll be sending out a call for papers, well, hopefully in the next few weeks, but obviously it's the start of term at the end of September, so then that may get in the way. But there will be definitely a call for papers coming out in the next you know, weeks, stroke months. So I'd encourage you, not only the people that presented today, but anyone else who's got sort of papers in development that they'd like to be considered for a publication linked to this, and also possibly an ongoing research network of scholars interested in these sorts of issues. Um, so I think it's time to go to the pub now. Thanks very much for coming. The Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism is an interdisciplinary student-led research association founded by research students and academics in 1990 at the London School of Economics and Political Science. We seek to fulfil two broad objectives, to facilitate and maintain an interdisciplinary global network of researchers, academics and other scholars interested in ethnicity and nationalism, and to stimulate, produce and diffuse world-class research on ethnicity and nationalism. We do this through our global membership, our two leading journals, Nations and Nationalism and Studies in Ethnicity and Nationalism, our newsletter, The Ruritanian, which provides key updates on information in the field, and through our programme of events. Our YouTube channel features videos from our annual conferences, seminar series, lectures and debates. You can find us online at lse.ac.uk forward slash ASIN, on Twitter at ASIN Events, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ASIN Events.